0: There is a rule of thumb. It doesn't always work. Sometimes we're lucky enough not to need to apply it, but it generally works pretty well. And that rule is, if someone offers you a simple solution to a complex problem, it probably doesn't work. Either they haven't thought the problem through enough, or maybe they don't want you to think the problem through enough, and the reasoning behind that is unlikely to be to your benefit. There is a massive industry of people out there who want to sell you the idea that complicated problems, in your personal life or in the world at large, have a simple solution. And it's tantalising to think that they do, even when the evidence cuts against it. With all that said, here's a fact. The entire energy demand, not just electricity, but energy demand of the world, which is usually seven or eight times higher than the demand for electricity alone, could be met by covering a fraction, maybe even a small fraction, of the Sahara Desert in solar panels. sure it would be a big project, but Once complete, humanity would no longer depend on finite fossil fuels for energy. If you squint, it seems like this could be the solution to all of our energy and climate problems. The story behind how this idea first came about is quite a good one, so I'll repeat it here. In 1986, a power surge during a safety test of the reactor at Chernobyl caused a catastrophic explosion. 31 people were directly killed by the explosion and the initial dose of radiation, and many more have died due to the lasting effects of the fallout. Alongside the Fukushima event in 2011, it is one of only two nuclear power disasters in history to be rated as a maximum severity event, ominously referred to as a level 7. All over the world, support for nuclear power plummeted in the aftermath of Chernobyl. But in Germany, Gerhard Nisch, a particle physicist, was inspired to ask a simple question. Fossil fuels such as coal, oil, and natural gas, their energy flowed from the sun. It took a torturous path through the plants and animals that were buried for thousands of years to get to us. The radioactive uranium that fueled nuclear power plants was also forged as a trace byproduct of nuclear fusion in stars. Would it not be easier, cheaper, and cleaner to just get our energy directly from the sun? He did a simple back of the envelope calculation and worked out that in just six hours, the world's deserts receive more solar energy than the entire human race consumed in a year the energy needs of the world could be met by covering just 1% of the Sahara desert in solar panels. The Sahara gets an awful lot of energy from the sun, which is likely obvious if you've ever been there, and much of it is not inhabited or used by people at least in any way. Now he probably wasn't even thinking about carbon emissions in 1986, just the fact that fossil fuels would one day run out and nuclear power was looking like less of a good prospect. But climate change provides an even more stark motivation for pursuing the project. And of course it just seems so simple, He was himself frustrated about it, questioning, are we as a species really so stupid as to not make a better use of this resource? So while we're in this uh, fantasy world, let's make some very very loose estimates that will give us a slightly better idea as to how the mathematics of such a project might really work out with some real world constraints. Because this 1% estimate after all makes a lot of assumptions, mostly to do with how easily and how efficiently you can harness energy and how closely together solar panels are spaced. Global energy consumption is around 100,000 terawatt hours per year, give or take another 100,000 there. Now, the Pavagada Solar Park in India is a true monster, covering 53 square kilometres, with a nameplate capacity of around 2 gigawatts. So if every panel was generating at maximum capacity, that's what you'd get. It's the second largest power plant in the world, built in an arid region in India that was sparsely populated before. Now, any power plant is never running at maximum capacity, To account for this, we have the capacity factor, which is approximately the average fraction of that capacity that's generating across the year. It's hard to estimate because capacity factors are difficult to calculate. They can depend on the weather, daily and seasonal cycles, and so forth. But um, quite often what you have to do is actually run the power plant for a while, um, and then you can estimate the capacity factor because you can include things like maintenance and operational changes that might not necessarily show up so easily in your model. But some some estimates suggest that capacity factors for solar farms in India are between 11 and 30%. So let's take 20% as a rough rule of thumb. This means that this is like a power station that's generating 400 megawatts continuously. And that means that the Pavagada Solar Park is generating around 3.5 terawatt hours per year. Now we're going to ignore for a second the fact that there are peaks and troughs in this power generation and demand, and let's just see how much it would take to actually balance supply and demand with solar parks like this one. If we assume all solar farms are exactly like this, and ignore for a second the massive issue of storing electricity to cover periods of low generation and transmitting it to where it's needed, then we see that we need around 30,000 such solar farms to cover global energy demand. This in turn would cover about 1.6 million square kilometres, unless you can pack them a bit closer. The Sahara Desert is about 9.2 million square kilometers, so simply by using the statistics from an actual solar farm, you can see that 1.2% figure will probably end up being 10-20% of the desert. And yeah, you can have more efficient panels, you can push them closer together maybe, but that's unlikely to get you 10 times as many panels in, we're talking factors of 2 or 3 with that type of improvement. This is very reminiscent of a conclusion that the late, great David Mackay wrote about in Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which was his uh, analysis of how to get the UK onto 100% renewables. It's a little bit out of date now. One of the things I wanted to do for a long time is try and update it. Um, But essentially, one of the key drawbacks of renewables that he talked about there was that they simply take up a large amount of space. If you were able to blanket the UK in solar panels to the same specification of those in the Pavagada Park, and bear in mind that solar power is less efficient, the capacity factors are generally lower in the UK because it's less bright, you'd still need to cover 15 to 30% of the entire surface area of the country in those panels to supply our energy needs. In other words, you need to plan for renewables that are significant in scale and take up a lot of space. To power the world, you need country-sized renewables. Mackay pointed out that for some countries, those with low populations and a lot of empty space, for example, any country containing a massive desert, This will be more realisable than others. If you want your numbers to add up, then supplying the UK's energy demand with 100% renewables is going to require you to manage this space very carefully. Now the UK has done very well by exploiting our seas, for example the North Sea, and building huge amounts of offshore wind, uh, which supplies something like half of our electricity demand nowadays. But as I mentioned, the total energy demand, which includes heating for domestic industry and transport, is often six to seven times as high, Ultimately, unless you expect everything to be done by biofuels, you need to electrify everything and have all of that electricity supplied renewably, so you're back to needing renewables on a truly massive scale. This is why for the UK specifically, which has a pretty small solar resource, an incredibly dense and energy-intensive population, and a very small land area, he recommended either nuclear power on our shores, which I personally still think will end up being both necessary and actually part of the cheapest option to decarbonise the power system. Um, or indeed getting our renewable electricity through big interconnector systems with other countries, perhaps some of those countries with large deserts that have excess power. And so we're sort of back once again to the dream of the solar Sahara. How much might it cost? Again, we can very, very naively and roughly get an estimate for the raw cost of building such a plant. The Pavagada plant costs $2 billion to construct, so naively multiplying this by the 30,000 we'd need, you have a mere $60 trillion. Now, of course, if you were building enough solar panels and a large enough farm to cover a vast swath of the Sahara in the greatest engineering project ever attempted by humanity and throwing trillions of dollars behind your efforts, you can imagine that there would be some pretty awesome technological innovations, economies of scale and so on, that would reduce the cost substantially below that inflated figure. So let's say we can cut it down to 15 trillion dollars or so with those economies of scale. That sounds like an awful lot, but the global financial markets wiped that much off during the 2008-9 financial crisis in the course of a year or so. If this project was built over, say, 10 or 15 years, it would only be around $1.5 trillion a year, or around 1% of global GDP. And this would hardly be money that was lost, as it was in the global financial crisis, but instead investment in humanity's future, producing a colossal amount of jobs and economic booms in solar panel manufacturing and installation. Clearly this is, this is a fantasy here, we're not even taking this prospect particularly seriously when we do this kind of silly back of the envelope calculation. I mean we might all have fantasies of playing dictator, snapping our fingers and saying make it so, and spending percentages of global GDP to wipe out all sorts of problems. But we know that this can't happen. Except of course that some people have taken the idea of a solar Sahara quite seriously. Of course, it's difficult to persuade people to invest in a grand and ambitious scheme, and one that requires an awful lot of overhead investment before it will realise any profit, but the Desertec initiative was a real attempt to demonstrate that this concept could work. This plan was to put solar panels in the Sahara that would power a great deal of the Middle East and North Africa, or the MENA country, energy needs, while allowing for a valuable maybe 60 billion euro energy export industry that would power 15% of Europe's energy requirements, in terms of electricity at least. Meanwhile, the Europeans, by importing the plentiful desert power, would save 30 euros per megawatt hour on their electricity bills, according to the calculations of the people who dreamed this up. Everyone would win, in the long run. The Desertec project began in earnest in 2009, and quickly had a number of industry partners lined up, including Eon, Deutsche Bank and Siemens. Their investment would be necessary, as the project was estimated to cost 400 billion euros, although unlike, for example, a giant wall across the US-Mexico border, It had a prayer of paying for itself after some years of operation. But the project stalled, and by 2014, of the 17 initial industry partners, there were just three who were left on board. Nowadays, it's generally considered to be a a dead project that's not really going anywhere at this point. So what went wrong with Desertec? Well, a combination of two different sets of factors. The first are the issues that have plagued the transition to renewable energy for decades now, and the second are some unique geopolitical and logistical challenges of solar panels in the Sahara more specifically. They're both worth looking into. First, the general issues with renewable energy. The Desertec plan called for a centralised power station that would deliver electricity across three continents, and transporting that electricity across such long distances can be a problem. The plan was to use high-voltage DC power lines, rather than the AC power lines that we're familiar with. Across longer distances, the energy losses can be as little as 3% per 1,000 kilometres, which is lower than AC power lines. But nothing had ever been built on that scale before. The longest link is in Brazil, the Rio Madeira line, and transports 6.3 gigawatts across around 2,400 kilometres. For Desertec to be a success, 30 gigawatts of power would need to be transported from the Sahara to Europe, more than 3,000 kilometres. Yet this is getting more and more feasible all the time, In July 2016, the Chinese government started funding a high-voltage DC power line that would transport 12 gigawatts across 3,000 kilometres, and in just the last five years, it's become fairly routine for gigawatts of power to be transported across China through these ultra-high voltage lines for 1,000 kilometres or more, which is done largely to transmit power from these huge electricity facilities out in deserts and places like that to the cities. So this is an engineering option, even if it's likely to be expensive. Speaking of which, although we're focusing on the solar Sahara as symbolic of how this kind of approach might work, it's pretty obvious that you wouldn't supply the entire world's energy from the Sahara alone, and indeed Desertec wasn't really about that. Instead, you'd put similar large-scale installations in any given desert for any given region, in China, there's domestic deserts. In other places, you can match your own regional desert to the appropriate large population centre. David Mackay showed that you can imagine putting similar patches on global maps to supply most continents around the world with energy in such a way that doesn't require power to be transported across truly ridiculous distances, if you want. In reality, of course, we'd expect people to try to find the lowest cost option. When the cost of transmitting and storing electricity becomes more dominant than the abundant cheap electricity you might get from building a huge solar farm in the desert, you can expect that is going to limit the scale of the farm that gets built. And ultimately, when it comes to the practicality of these projects, one of the issues is always going to be with finding the finance for them. Now we talked about this uh, in respect to the nuclear fusion episodes where we were discussing the economics of a fusion power plant. And lots of the economics of a fusion power plant don't even really come down to the specific type of technology you're using necessarily, but purely the fact that you'll have to build something with a huge amount of upfront investment. It's going to take a long time to construct. And there's frankly very few uh, financiers and investors out there who are going to say, yeah, I want to take a really, really big gamble on something that might pay off in 20 years uh, and put down a lot of money right now compared to the financiers who will say, well, I want to put down a little bit of money to build a much smaller project, which will start realising a profit over the course of 12 months and might not have as many big chances to fail. And I think that is essentially the main reason why these huge projects, uh, energy projects, like, for example, Hinkley Point C, which is going to provide two gigawatts or so in the UK, and other similar huge energy projects of this type, generally only happen with government backing. And a lot of the big, big energy projects of this sort need that or they need to be built in stages at least so that there is not the same level of uh, cost of capital you might call it the the issue with the financiers coming in and wanting returns more quickly than you can get if you have a project that's truly huge in scale and of course for the solar Sahara project or similar projects you can see that it's not the same as building a wind farm a few miles offshore from the UK for example which you might be able to convince investors will realize profit soon because it's not going to realize any profit until all of those high voltage DC cable lines are built and a significant amount of the solar panels are built. So it's a project that has to be quite big to be worth doing if your goal is to really export it across several different countries. And so you do need a lot of that upfront investment. And as we've seen with nuclear fission in recent years, Trying to get the upfront investment on the order of billions of dollars for an energy system is really, really difficult. So aside from the finance, it's not just about transporting the power. A major issue with renewables is, of course, the intermittency problem. What do you do when the sun doesn't shine? Energy industry researchers talk about a hypothesized European supergrid that allows for the transmission of power from regions of excess production to regions of excess need. And in fact, this happens quite a lot already uh, internally within countries to ensure a constant supply of electricity, Um, but they have the advantage of depending on fossil fuel plants where the energy production can be ramped up and down more quickly, or at will, more or less, um, compared to waiting for the sun to shine and for the wind to blow. France and the UK, for example, are connected by a two gigawatt power line. High voltage direct current allows power to be sent in both directions depending on demand. Usually the British import French electricity from their nuclear power plants, but not always. The fjords of Norway let them produce 98% of their electricity in hydroelectric plants, the wind of Denmark, which has one of the biggest wind power industries in the world, lets them produce 50% of their electricity by renewables, and cables across Scandinavia ensure that everyone can obtain power, whether the wind's blowing or the sun is shining. And studies have indicated that the Mediterranean region alone, with better interconnectivity in a source of power like Desertec, could supply up to 80% of its electricity needs just by solar power, without worrying about intermittency. Yet it seems very likely that weaning the grid off the convenience of fossil fuels entirely will require a combination of policies. First, you'll need diversified renewable sources of energy, including plenty of power that can be turned on to cope with surges in demand, or else a lot of latent extra capacity. Secondly, you'll need these energy storage technologies that will prevent waste and allow for a continuous supply. Energy storage is still really in its infancy compared to our ability to actually generate power. Our best method in terms of what's been implemented on a wide scale is pumped storage hydroelectric power. During times of excess supply, water is pumped uphill and during excess demand it's allowed to run downhill and drive a turbine. This one technique accounts for around 99% of global energy storage capacity, which is a respectable 127 gigawatts. But that pales in comparison to the 15 terawatts of power used globally, so that's 15,000 gigawatts of power that we're using globally on average, and 127 gigawatts that we can actually store. If all the energy storage capacity that we have was deployed at the same time, it would provide less than 1% of the power that we use. So the energy storage that we have at the moment is simply not enough to make up for big differences in our electricity generation if they showed up. There are plenty of ideas for improving this. Maybe we could charge supercapacitors with electricity and allow them to discharge. We could use electricity to electrolyze water, converting it into hydrogen, which can be burned in fuel cells. That's very popular. People are looking into even converting the electrical energy into a store of gravitational potential energy by lifting rocks or concrete boulders, although we don't really know whether this is going to be an economical solution. As yet, none of these energy storage mechanisms has demonstrated that it can be scaled up to the levels that would be required. But for Desertec, even without the need for the huge initial financial outlay and the capital costs of building these cables and the storage, there were more specific problems. For a start, as people were looking into the project to centre the world's power supply in Libya and Algeria, there was a civil war in Libya. And although the Arab Spring initially boosted hopes for the plan, the continuing political instability in the Sahara region has spooked a lot of the investors. Combine that with the fact that the project was never intended to be finished until 2050, and industrial partners would have to be persuaded away from more near-term opportunities for profit. Then there is the more delicate political issue of natural resource rights. Like many bold futuristic projects, the little matter of governments can get in the way of something like Desertec. Countries have been made rich through the exports of oil or coal. Could sunlight one day fulfil a similar role? On the surface, this is another bonus to the Desertec scheme poorer countries have something incredibly valuable to export to the rest of the world while amply supplying their own energy needs for growth. But in practice, there has been scepticism on the ground that this isn't just another imperialist exploitation move. The African network of solar energy. Their spokesman said that Europeans make promises, but at the end of the day, they bring their engineers, they bring their equipment, and they go. It's a new form of resource exploitation, just like in the past. There was another slightly more hopeful reason that Desertec has stalled. It backed concentrating solar power where parabolic mirrors concentrate sunlight which boils steam to drive wind turbines. This was the technology that brought Siemens on board. The only problem is that, as Desertec was being developed, the price of solar panels, sort of photovoltaics, fell off a cliff. From 2009 to 2014, the levelised cost of electricity, taking into account construction, maintenance, fuel, etc., of solar photovoltaic panels fell by 80%, and it's still going down. In just five years, it became five times cheaper. This was one of the reasons Siemens cited for abandoning the project, which now seemed to be backing the wrong technology. Desertec continues in a smaller form. They're still building power plants in Morocco to supply the local energy needs of that country. And maybe a ground-up approach where Middle East and North African countries increase their own solar production in the desert before becoming net exporters will provide a solution in the long term that won't rely on this massive top-down thinking that is not necessarily likely to succeed anytime soon. And of course, there's a certain justice and convenience to this. Countries that currently depend on fossil fuel exports also quite often happen to have large areas which could be devoted to solar power, and countries that have historically been disadvantaged are often abundant in this natural resource. So if these interconnectors end up being built, maybe these nations can continue to supply the densely populated cold and dark northern hemisphere with power for their winters, for a price of course. The project is not the first wildly ambitious scheme to provide for a lot of the world's energy needs that are stalled, Historians remember Atlantropa, a scheme to dam the Strait of Gibraltar and use it for hydroelectric power, that had some interest from the 1920s all the way up to the 1950s. It was actually a pretty wild idea, even for me, who sort of likes spending a lot of time exploring wild ideas in history. The concept was, okay, dam the Strait of Gibraltar, which separates Spain from Africa, and that dam would become a massive hydroelectric power plant that would power Europe and Africa with power. The Mediterranean Sea would be trapped in the middle, so they would desalinate the water to irrigate massive areas of agricultural land that would be reclaimed from under the ocean as that uh, ocean sort of started to dry up. And it would also provide water uh, for the people who lived there. It was really a planetary engineering project out of science fiction, which is partly why it attracted the interest of lots of people, including some of the Nazis, briefly. As with Desertec, though, there are worrying colonial implications to the project, which would really be something that was imposed on nations in Africa and the Middle East to supply excess import demand for power, land and food in Europe. It was even briefly popularised as an idea to rebuild after the Second World War by some of the Western allies, who recognised that the massive economic stimulus associated with such a project, alongside the consolidation of influence over Africa, already increasingly a battleground in the Civil Cold War by then, uh, would be strategically useful but it was ultimately abandoned, largely, with the death of its inventor and main proponent, and hasn't really been seriously considered since 1960. Yet despite all this, the prospect that we could solve all our problems with such a massive engineering project remains tantalising. It's not totally different, after all, to a planet-wide Green New Deal, and in the most idealistic case, could even encourage people and nations to cooperate on a big project for once. Surely, when only a tiny fraction of the Earth's surface needs to be devoted to energy production to provide us with more power than we could ever dream of consuming... We won't wreck the planet by getting that energy through dirty and dangerous means. To starry-eyed idealists, it must seem equivalent to being on a raft in a lake full of drinking water, and choosing instead to swig from a bottle of seawater in your backpack. In reality, dreams of actually turning that tiny patch of map into the world's energy hub might be idealistic and oversimplified. But you still feel that one thing is true. Someday, we'll make better use of the abundant energy from the sun. Because we'll have to. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form. Those emails that you send go through to me, and I try and read and respond to most of them, and it always makes my day when I get one, so feel free to contact us there with any questions, comments, concerns, topics you'd like the show to cover, anything along those lines. Until next time then, take care.